0: From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson.
1: And I'm Melissa Ross from WJCT in Jacksonville.
0: Well, Melissa, Election Day now 18 days away. Early voting begins, though, on Monday in many places here in the Sunshine State. And already almost one million Floridians have voted by mail. Thousands of people registered to vote thanks to an extra week here, Melissa. And the deadline was Tuesday of this week now.
1: That's right. After two hurricanes, Tom, two lawsuits and a couple of federal court orders, voter registration for November's general election is now closed across the state of Florida, but not before more than 70,000 people took advantage of the extra time to sign up to vote. So we want to hear from you right now. Are you registered to vote? Have you had any trouble voting in the past in Florida? Are you worried about the security of your vote? Get on the line now. Give us a call. 305-995-1800. Three zero five nine nine five eighteen hundred. Or use the hashtag Decision Florida.
0: Now, this additional week, Melissa, came thanks to a decision by U.S. District Court Judge Mark Walker. It was a coalition of Democratic-leaning groups that sued to get the state deadline to get registered to vote pushed back a week. Kevin Hamilton is an attorney for the Florida Democratic Party. It's incumbent on the state to make it easier for people to vote, not harder for people to vote. That's what our country is all about, is is voting. And I think it's it's a shame that um, that the state didn't do this without having to, to file the lawsuit.
1: Now, before the ruling, Seminole County Supervisor of Elections Mike Urtel told WMFE in Orlando that he was concerned about changing the rules.
2: You know, we're not in the business of doing favors for political campaigns, or candidates. If uh, we change the rules for one party, will we change the rules for another party? And that's one of the things I think that people don't trust a lot about elections when they see that things are changed for one person and not
0: another person. Now, Democrats wanted to have the same judge require the state to hurry up and process the thousands of new voter applications before early voting starts on Monday in many places here. The judge, though, earlier this week refused to issue that order. The state, Melissa, hopes to verify all these new registrations a week from Saturday. That's the last day early voting can begin And it would be 10 days before Election Day.
1: Yeah, that's right. Getting right up against it. Now, all of this about voter registration comes as the same judge who extended the deadline also ordered the state to change rules about signatures on absentee ballots. Voters now have a second chance if a signature on their mail-in ballot envelope Doesn't match the signature on file.
0: So here we are. Let's add all this up, right? Just days away from early voting. We've got about a million people in Florida who've already voted, and we're talking about the process of voting. Well, let's face it. This is Florida, after all. And the statement this week from Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump that he will keep voters, quote, in suspense about accepting the election outcome has certainly put a spotlight on the issue of voter access and voter security throughout the United States and especially here in Florida, Melissa.
1: Yeah, it's shades of 2000. I hope not. (laughs) Susan Booker joins us now. She is the supervisor of elections in Palm Beach County. Thanks so much for being with us, Susan. Let's begin by asking you, is Palm Beach County ready for early voting on Monday?
3: We're absolutely ready. On Monday morning at 7 a.m., we'll be opening 15 locations throughout the county, and we're using the maximum number of allowable days in the law and the maximum number of hours. We'll be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 14 consecutive days, including the final Sunday souls to the polls, and uh, we're ready to go.
0: Susan, it's Tom Hudson. How many new voter registrations are you likely to see in uh, Palm Beach County because of the weak extension that we had statewide?
3: Well, I think the extension was a victory for all Floridians, and fortunately, a lot of people took advantage here in Palm Beach County. We saw about 15,000 additional registrations come over the counter, and we're still getting great volumes of mail, so I'm anticipating at least twenty to 22,000 new registered voters in Palm Beach County.
0: That's out of 70,000 statewide. You saw 22,000 alone in Palm Beach County?
3: Yeah, South Florida had a very busy business. People were coming in with volumes. We have third-party registrars who were out there, and it was a lot of young people, which was very encouraging. And they were out there uh, getting voter registrations and turning them in. One day they brought us uh, about a foot, deep uh, voter registrations that were completed. And I'm Mm. pleased to say that we've been working overtime for the last month and a half, seven days a week, uh, late hours, and we will complete entering all those in to our voter system by tomorrow. Uh, we are watching the state Does that mean they're verified,
0: Susan, I'm sorry, does that mean they're verified if they're entered into your system, or the state still needs to verify them?
3: The state still needs to verify the driver's license and social security numbers that are required on those applications the state has a contract with Highway Safety and they've said that, you know they have a delay, and unfortunately two days ago, the Secretary of State was just ramping up which is ridiculous, we knew the impact of this, and he's got 65 people, he said in a press release working on it i have more than 65 extra people in my shop working on that uh,
0: melissa i gotta say I'm, yeah, I'm and, um, let me ask let th- me jump a, in a, if i could a, susan but just real quick a third of all new state registered for voters in the last week coming from palm beach county that's what you're saying almost
3: well, I'll tell you, I think we're going to see a larger volume. I know my colleague to the south in Miami said that she had boxes of them, okay. and we're not going to know until everybody da- does their data input and sends them up to the state and the state turns them back around to us. And
1: given the fact that you have such a volume and that Palm Beach County, of course, is what triggered the infamous Florida recount in 2000, Can you bring us up to date on how processes and protocols have changed over the last 16 years? When we think back to the era of butterfly ballots and hanging chads, we've come a long way in terms of how we count votes. Can you share with us a little bit about how Palm Beach does things differently today?
3: Sure. I joined the uh, Supervisor of Elections Office in 2008. After serving uh, eight years in the Florida House, sitting on the Ethics and Elections Committee, we not only require a paper-based system throughout the state of Florida, but there are protocols in place to call for a logic and accuracy testing of the machines prior to every election. We did that. We were 100%. And then after the election, we created some legislation that requires a post-election audit you choose different locations that you reported election results for, and then you actually hand count ballots and compare it to the vote totals that you reported on election night, and those have to match, and they always do. Our audits have always been 100%. And the rules and the quality of the uh, system, there is complete control, chain of control that has tremendously uh, increased the viability of our elections. And I will tell you, we ha- we're, the equipment is tested and certified, and we do the logic and accuracy test. We do the post-election audit. And Palm Beach County, and I know all of my other colleagues, will have a clean and verifiable election on November 8th.
1: And uh, let's go to some of your calls from the Peninsula to the Panhandle here on Decision Florida. What are your questions about voter registration? It is 305-995-1800. Gina in Miami is on the line. Hi, Gina, you're on the air. Go ahead.
2: Hi there. I want to tell you about an experience I had during the voting for the primaries. I um, Yeah, please do. I've been, a, I've been a lifelong Miami-Dade County resident. I recently relocated to Broward County. And in the process of uh, getting my new voters' registration, um, on the day of the election, I I discovered that I had been stripped of my um, party registration, and I was going to be denied the right to vote. Um, Furthermore, the, the districts had been rezoned, and my card had sent me to the wrong voting precinct. I was redirected. Then discovered I couldn't vote then I had to go to the supervisor of election office in order to have the right to vote then I went back to the voting area that I was supposed to vote at and and then they gave me an envelope and no ballot because the people at the voting area weren't educated enough to know that there was a difference between the ballot and the envelope and I made had to make a big a big scene in the Hmm. precinct in order to get my ballot
0: did you vote Gina Yeah, did you end up voting?
2: I did, but it was, if if I didn't have a master's degree and knew my rights, um, I don't think someone else would have been able to. I persevered and spent several hours trying to vote. It was, I was shocked and very disappointed in Broward County and Brenda Snipes, who's the supervisor of election, because I did finally get my new voter registration a week after the primaries, which was bad timing.
0: Gina, let me put that to the supervisor of elections just north of Broward County and Palm Beach County to uh, Susan Booker. Susan, what's the message to Gina? You've got Florida voters in this election cycle that are dealing with new boundaries, new political boundaries for the U.S. House of Representatives, for the Florida State House and the Florida State Senate.
3: Well, it's actually the congressional districts and the state senate. The Florida Supreme Court threw out the redistricting plan that the legislature created in 2012. They threw that out in December of 2015 because they found that the leadership in the legislature violated the Constitution and broke the law, used partisan data to create the district. But
0: there's already, right, that's already been litigated, though. Yeah, My point so is, the what's the message to changing. voters, though, Well, Susan. the
3: message to voters is make sure that you're election ready. You can go to any one of our websites, including Dr. Snipes' website. And you can just Google SOE and your county, and we've arranged with Google to come up prominently. And you can look, and all of us have a place that says, where do I vote? Am I registered? Uh, Vote by mail? All kinds of information. And we have a lot of people checking it now.
1: Susan, as a follow up, uh, I've I've taken uh, emails and calls up here in Duval County from people who've had trouble with the same type of thing as what Gina in Miami said. And one listener uh, said to me, this seems to just prove to me that the system is rigged because I had trouble voting. What would you say to the claims that we've heard this season that the system is rigged?
3: Well, I think it's it's unfortunate that we have a candidate that's really attacking the system, had no problem accepting the election results of the primary. Uh, you know, the, we have a paper-based system. We have processes in place that have widely improved. We have four different ways to verify that the accurate count was taken at each one of our precincts, and that is when you put your ballot in the scanner, there's a cartridge that counts the votes, there's a tape that comes out the back, there is a valid paper ballot that can be counted if there's questions, and we also, in Palm Beach County, we have uh, many iPads that check you in, and we can check that data against the number of voters who checked in. And so there are some human processes that are required to be able to verify the counts are accurate and they are cross-checkable.
0: Susan Booker is the supervisor of elections in Palm Beach County, early voting, 7 a.m. on Monday, Uh, Susan, in your county and many other counties throughout South Florida, with Election Day, of course, just 18 days away. Thanks for joining us here on Decision Florida. We appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: we got plenty more to come on our program, the uh, election issue that spends billions of dollars here in Florida, Melissa. We haven't talked much about it yet until now. It is education. It's still to come. This is Decision Florida from Florida Public Radio.
1: From Florida Public Radio, this is Decision Florida. I'm Melissa Ross with WJCT in Jacksonville.
0: And I'm Tom Hudson with WLRN in Miami.
1: And Tom, it's a hugely important issue in the state, but it's one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention this election year, education.
0: Yeah, you know, there's really deep divides in the state over school funding, school choice, charter schools, and of course standardized testing. It's all become political wedge issues. Millions and millions of taxpayer dollars and dozens of school days are spent, for instance, on testing. Here's Kathy Carter.
4: For school let out, in May, nine year old Haley Everett brought home a certificate for making the honor roll at Chocuchati Elementary School in Hernando County. The next day, her grandmother and guardian, Pam Everett, got a call from the school's principal telling her Haley would not be promoted to fourth grade.
5: My jaw hit the floor. I mean, I I couldn't believe it. Here's this student that is two grades above her reading level, and then to tell me they're going to retain it because no score.
4: Haley had no score on the Florida standards assessment because her grandmother told her not to take it. But she did break the seal on the exam and signed her name to it. Everett says that means her granddaughter participated in the test as the state requires. Everett and 13 other plaintiffs from seven counties filed a lawsuit saying their kids were wrongly held back. State law says schools may consider things besides the FSA, like teacher assessments and good report cards, but some districts interpret the law to mean no test score, no promotion.
1: Now in August, a judge in Leon County agreed with those parents, but several school districts appealed. Haley, the girl who didn't take the test last year in Hernando County, Tom, she's now being homeschooled.
0: So lots of tax dollars here at stake, Melissa. They're spent on education in Florida. Uh, Lots of those dollars in that budget. And education is one of the largest line items in the state budget every year. So what about the politics of education funding? What are the state testing rules and the pushback by parents in some school districts? Maybe you're a parent. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe a former teacher. What's the education issue that you're taking with you to the voting booth? Talking about education now and the uh, political arena here, here's the phone number throughout the state of Florida, 305-995-1800.
1: Right now, we're going to take a closer look at the state of K-12 education in Florida as we welcome reporter Jessica Bateman of Politico on the line from Orlando, and here in Jacksonville with me, reporter Lindsay Kilbride of WJCT. And... Jessica Bateman, let's begin with you. As we look at the politics of education funding in the state, the Florida Board of Education recently approved a request to funnel more money, uh, more state and local tax dollars through the main formula for funding public ed to the tune of $20.9 billion. That's an increase over last year. At the same time, the governor and the legislature are saying they want to hold property taxes flat. So how tangled are the politics of funding our schools right now?
6: Well, uh, you mentioned the biggest issue which comes up every year, which is whether to increase funding primarily with more money from the state or with more money from localities, which is funded with local property taxes. Uh, During the current budget year, during the legislative session that took place at the beginning of 2016, um, the governor had originally proposed a pretty big uh, increase and uh, had most of that increase coming from local property taxes. Now, he didn't he didn't propose to increase the property tax rate, but because property values have increased as the economy is recovering, those property tax values are going up. And so the property tax rates as they are, are generating more money. But the legislature sees that as a tax increase. And so they have argued that we should roll back the tax rates or bring them to the level that would Uh, result in taxpayers paying the same amount of money or even less. And so that's what happened this year. Um, The the legislators came to an agreement to roll back the rates and gave uh, property taxpayers some relief. They still had a, a smaller increase than what the governor had proposed, but the increase was uh, covered mostly by state funding. However, uh, teachers, unions, and other public education advocates still argue that even with an increase, even though the governor and the legislature have touted the current spending level as a record per pupil spending level, that it's not actually record because it hasn't kept pace with inflation. And of course, it's also important to remember that the state the population is exploding in the state, and so the public schools are enrolling something like 35,000 students additionally every year.
0: So, Jessica, it's Tom Hudson. Where is the possible increase in school funding, public school, K-12 through school funding, uh, to come from? Increasingly, is it going to be determined at, that it will come from local municipalities, given the... Uh, The state legislature's efforts Mm -hmm. to try to keep the state taxing level even, even with property values increasing?
6: Well, I think that we'll see the same fight in 2017 that we did this year. Um, You know, when we see the uh, legislative budget requests coming out of agencies like the Department of Education, that's reflective of what the governor will likely propose when he puts forth his budget plan. I think it's fair to say he'll probably do something similar as he did this year with, uh, you know, proposing an increase that would be um, largely shouldered by localities and the legislature will probably push back. Another interesting aspect of this to look at in 2017 is that we have new incoming legislative leaders. And uh, the new incoming Senate President Joe Negron has said that universities, the public universities, are his biggest priority. And Mm -hmm. uh, he has said that, you know, he wants to increase Funding to the universities, and that he would be comfortable with leaving the K 12 level where it is. He'll definitely get some pushback from the House, but um, while there are always different silos of the budget that are competing with each other, of course, education, healthcare, energy, transportation, um, this year I'll be looking specifically at the competition, even within the education silo, between K 12 community colleges and public universities
1: and the number to call in to Decision Florida, let us know your thoughts about the state's education funding, standardized testing, and more. It's 305-995-1800 to call us up right now. Let's talk about standardized testing. Lindsey Kilbride, reporter here in Jacksonville at WJCT. When we look at the pushback we're seeing around the state by parents and even some school districts against testing and this growing opt-out movement, that's something you've been covering.
7: Yeah, I mean, I cover a lot of uh, the testing issues, and um, the, the big thing is that you know a lot of school grades are tied to how students are doing to these te- doing on these tests. So it's everything's very connected. So you know, if schools aren't making uh, high enough grades, then the state can have the schools make a turnaround plan. So that really matters to the district that students are making these grades, um, and are making these scores on the tests, and. Um, and that's also connected. Um, it's it just it's just all very mm-hmm. connected. So um, it's so if, if schools aren't uh, uh, being graded high enough, then mm-hmm. uh, the district can essentially shut the school down eventually. Um, and, and so it's very um, contentious when it comes to this. At the same time, parents don't feel like that there's um there's talk about you know what do the tests even mean? They change the scores frequently, and so it's hard for districts to compare grades from year to year. Um, so that's a big issue. Um, mm-hmm. So it's hard to know how it, what your what the school grade actually means if you're a parent. Um,
1: and, and, and parents questioning the validity, validity of the cut scores.
7: Yeah. And so our um, a, a local school board members, you know, at our, in our own school board, they're asking, should we have our own set of standards since the test scores change so frequently, the um, cut scores? Um, and so it's it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and it all ties into as well, the uh, the contentious debate we're seeing in Florida and nationally over school choice and uh, taxpayer funding for charter schools. And uh, that has that is something that when you boil it down to the county level, for example, here in Duval County, it's just as controversial as anywhere in the state.
7: Yeah. Um- Local school boards will handle it differently, um, and you then you'll see school board members being funded in their campaigns by uh, p- uh, charter organizations or charter school managers, and then you know it makes the public concerned about the politics involved. And um, the interesting thing is, you know, most local school boards are nonpartisan. And 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 to get into a bigger thing, should education even be a political issue? It is because legislators are making this. <laughs> this issue, they're, they're making the decision, they're divvying up the funding, they're making rules about how charter schools, you know, what terms they can open, they can overrule local school boards on many occasions if they deny a charter school. But, you know, technically, they may have made the marks to open up a charter school. But really, um, when you politicize education, you're taking children out of the equation. So local school boards are nonpartisan, yet the higher up, you uh, You know, rulemakers are partisan. So it's hard because many times people want to know what, uh, if their school board members are Republicans or Democrats. But really, you should look at the research, you should look at Um, you know, for instance, people always make a blatant statement, you know, I hate Common Core, I'm against it because, you know, maybe the lobbyists or whoever's funding them, uh, that's, you know, what they believe. Um, and that's okay. But I think that when you look at the research, maybe there are, there are pieces of that that are important. And also to go back to, um, testing, um, whenever we're, we're talking about, um, I totally just lost it. My- <laughs> That's okay.
1: That's okay. Uh, Tom, uh, now, Lindsay mentioned uh, some ca- counties responding differently down in your neck of the woods. Palm Beach... Uh, school board uh, officials, have defied the legislature at times on well, these issues. Yeah,
0: there's been a number of, of the larger school districts, especially, that have uh, pushed back significantly against the amount of state testing that uh, Tallahassee has been talking about. And Jessica Bakeman with Politico, I'd want to put this to you, uh, you know, w- with the budget challenge that's happening, the push and pull between state funding and local funding, this is also uh, exemplified in the uh, uh, push and pull between state, attest, uh, state test assessments about which tests and how many tests the state is requiring and how many the school district is going to uh, continue to put into the classroom.
6: Right. The state and local school districts, uh, notably Miami-Dade, have made efforts in the in recent years to cut down on the testing that's required. Uh, as far as how the legislature has responded, um, you know, in 2014-15, we had the first state tests that were aligned to the Common Core standards. And also, when those were rolled out, uh, they're developed by a company called the American Institutes for Research, um, or AIR. AIR experienced a lot of um, technical difficulties. There were also cyber attacks that plagued these exams. And so um, at that point in time, I think state testing was especially controversial because as parents and students, as as superintendents and teachers, you're seeing all of this disruption going on and you're questioning are the students' performance on these tests going to accurately represent the performance of the schools right. and the districts, which, you know, of course has been mentioned, is high stakes. It, it, it determines funding. It determines whether school can even stay open. Um, and the legislature briefly dealt with that. They um, commissioned a validity study by a third-party uh, company, and then, uh, you know, they had a couple of hearings where they questioned the Education Commissioner, Pam Stewart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately— The validity study said that For most cases, uh, the test could be trusted, and the Department of Education said that they were going to go after some damages from this company. Just recently, they did get a $5 million settlement, but the 2015-16 testing went smoothly. And so the the, uh, issues in the legislature or the efforts in the legislature to respond to this really have quieted down, with the exception that uh, during the 2016 session, Senator Don Gates, who is term-limited, so now he won't be returning  – he put forward a proposal to allow alternative tests like the SATs, the ACTs, advanced placements testing to be used in lieu of state exams, which the Department of Education uh, really – opposed mm-hmm. very strongly. But uh, Bill Montford, another senator, said he will bring that proposal back this year. And uh, an interesting twist that has happened since is that new a new federal law called the Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaced No Child Left Behind, specifically says that states have the authority to allow districts to use the SAT, the ACT, and other alternative tests in lieu of state exams. So we'll see if they take advantage of that.
0: Jessica Bakeman watching uh, statewide education policy at Politico as we talk talk about politics and education. This is Decision Florida from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio. Let's go to your phones. Let's begin in Gainesville, where Sean is joining us. Sean, go ahead. You're on the air.
8: Yes, hello. I'd like to thank you guys for having me on the air. Um, I was a student a uh, few, you know, a couple years back. I was a senior student here in Florida, completing my last year of high school. But I originally came from Canada. And when I arrived in the US and I went to high school here for my last year. I learned just how rigid the system is here when it comes to standardized testing. Despite having a near 4.0 GPA and excellent SAT scores, I was required to take standardized testing for tests that usually are given to 9th or 10th graders. Um, the fact that we still require our students to take tests to get a snapshot of their academic progress as opposed to, you know, using the advent of technology to track progress over all the years that somebody's in the education system is frankly just frankly just quite ridiculous at this point it's and been, the fact that yeah. it, um
0: it's been oh a right. lot of criticism that uh, you know if every problem uh, uh looks like a nail when you only have a hammer uh, to to fix it sean we appreciate mm-hmm. your thoughts i want to squeeze in one more call here from miami nan you're on the program go ahead
2: uh hello this is nan
0: go ahead nan you're on the air
2: oh my goodness I'm calling because I have a friend who teaches uh, in Miami-Dade County Public School. She teaches 11th grade writing, and she has over 170 students. She has six classes. She has no time in her life to do anything but correct papers and try, you know, try to connect
3: with students
2: when she's so vast, you know, sorely overwhelmed.
1: Sure. No, and, you uh, know, that goes back to the class wrong. size amendment, Nan, that, you know, that, that class sizes are supposed to be smaller. Uh, a stu- uh, teachers aren't supposed to have to deal with that many students. But, uh, of course, in many school districts, they, they are.
2: Yeah. And they haven't got the funds to do any better. They have not got the wherewithal to hire more teachers.
0: Nan, we appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Jessica uh, Bakeman with Politico, you mentioned, uh, what, how many new thousands of students statewide every year coming into K-12 through education systems throughout the state, and uh, you hear Nan expressing the frustration of a friend there who's an 11th grade writing teacher.
6: Right, it's about 35,000 students, and as the state does continue to increase funding to education, it's hard to make that Um, you know, per pupil spending amount budge because the numbers of students that are coming in, you know, is so much every year.
0: Lindsay, how about uh, teacher pay and retention?
7: Yeah, I mean, that's been a big issue. I did a big story um, recently this week about teacher retention, and it's always an issue. And um, I looked at some of the research and there are some things that sort of um, are competing. Like for one thing, um, I read a study about what it takes to keep uh, teachers and the fact that it's more important to keep effective a teachers, not non-effective a teachers. Well, in order to keep effective a teachers, effective teachers, you have to evaluate them. And to evaluate teachers, it puts a lot of pressure and stress on teachers. So it's really finding that um, balance. And the other thing is that yes. since there Still is here. a teacher shortage... Since there is a teacher shortage, um, you know, there's always shortages in individual schools, even if it's not a nationwide issue at the time. Whenever there's a teacher shortage, you know, they'll try to bring in uh people from other um, stem fields and experts and things like that the issue with that is that sometimes they aren't as well prepared so there's talk about changing the certification requirements um, and it just goes
1: on and on <laughs> right but uh, <laughs> Jessica Bateman of Politico Lindsay Kilbride here in Jacksonville with me at WJCT such great reporting from both of you thanks for being with us thanks so much
0: you're listening to Thank decision you. Florida from Florida Public Radio From WLRN Public Media in Miami and Florida Public Radio. This is Decision Florida. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson.
1: And I'm Melissa Ross with WJCT in Jacksonville.
0: Melissa, this was the week we saw a lot of controversy flare up over the Amendment 1 that's on the ballot this fall here in the state.
1: That's right. Now, that's the solar amendment on the November ballot. Groups that are behind expanding solar here in Florida have been saying for a while that Amendment 1, while it sounds like it's promoting more solar power, is actually shady that it's a deceptive measure that's backed by the state's utility companies.
0: Yeah, this week, the Miami Herald published leaked audio that appears to confirm these claims. Listen to Sal Nuzzo here. He's the vice president of the James Madison Institute. That's a think tank that has ties to big electric utilities here in Florida. Solar polls very well to the degree that we can use a little bit of political jujitsu and take what they're uh, kind of hitting us on. And use it to our benefit, either in policy and legislation, or in constitutional referendums, if that's the direction that we take. Use the language of promoting solar and kind of kind of put in these protections for consumers uh, that kind of choose not to, uh, install rooftop. Now, this was at an industry conference in early October, talking about how the electric industry can use solar power policy or what passes as solar power public policy to address the business that uh, that it
1: may uh, it may pose. So here's what we want to talk about right now on the show. And we want your calls from across Florida. Are voters being deceived about what they're voting on when it comes to Amendment 1? And we also want to know. Do you want more solar power in Florida? Give us a call right now. It's 305-995-1800.
0: Mary Ellen Klaas is the uh, Tallahassee Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. She is with us from our sister station in Tallahassee, WFSU. Mary Ellen, you got a hold of this audio. Uh, Are voters in Florida being deceived with Amendment 1?
5: Well, thank you, uh, Tom. I I do think that um, people are extraordinarily confused, and— there is a clear indication, according to the the um, James Madison Institute uh, vice president that you, that you cite here, that they are being told that this is going to expand solar, it's going to protect consumer rights, when in fact those are things that uh, the public already has. So it, it's, it's designed to leave the impression that people are going to get more than what they have and it is there is nothing in their material that says this will actually add a new barrier or a new hurdle to getting solar and that is what it does it it adds a new layer of complexity and potential um it opens the door for the the utility industry in Florida to make it more difficult for people to get solar rooftop solar.
0: It makes it more difficult because it puts what's in state law now into the constitution and makes it that much harder to change. Is that the rationale?
5: No, actually, it puts um, uh, new protection. It, it has language in that says that the should there people who do not have solar are not allowed to subsidize those who have solar. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I can imagine every homeowner doesn't want to be subsidizing somebody to get a benefit that they don't um, appreciate. Sure. But the the flip side to that is that if the industry is able to define what subsidy is, they can then use this um, billing method called net metering, and they can find a way to Reduce the amount of money that uh, solar users now get when they sell excess power to the grid, and so right now that ha- that makes it very uh, economical for many homeowners to put solar on their roof. They, um, there is a, a group of entrepreneurs who are solar installers that want to come in and help people who can't afford to put solar on their roof uh, by offering them. The, the equipment and panels and lease it to them. And in return, they would benefit from selling the, sol- the excess solar energy t- to the power companies. Okay. If Ryan the, Bank with this amendment WJC- passes, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they'll be able
1: to restrict that. Okay. Ryan Bank with WJCT here in Jacksonville. Uh, we've just learned just a few moments ago that the Yes on One campaign has scrubbed uh, some language. From its website, after this recording was leaked online,
8: right, and that actually was reporting for the Miami, the Miami Herald as well. Um, it the connections and and Maryland class um, you can talk, probably talk to this a little bit more, but uh, the connections between the James Madison Institute and utility companies um, are seem to be there. Uh, they're they're not necessarily direct, but there there are some some indirect connections, like the. Uh, uh, CEO of Golf Power is also um, on James Madison Institute's board. Um, so I, I think what's happening right now is the Yes on One campaign is trying to distance themselves from the James Madison Institute um, because that, that it's just bad press from the recording. So I think we'll continue to see that that distance.
1: And, and can you explain a little bit how is Amendment 1 different than the solar amendment that voters approved back in August during the primary election?
8: So there's there's basically a couple of, of differences. The first difference really um, has to do with how the amendment was planned and how it was put on the ballot. And um, the Amendment 4 that was passed in August was actually a legislative amendment. It was an amendment that was sponsored by uh, Senator Jeff Brandis from St. Petersburg. Uh, and what it basically does is it it, it um, allows homeowners, uh, when they're assessed for their property taxes, to not have their solar equipment counted in that assessment. So it essentially functions as a property tax break. And it's actually homeowners or business owners. Um so it it's it's different in in policy and it's also different in the way that it was put on the ballot.
0: Let me bring in WLRN's Wilson Sayre, who's also done some reporting around these amendments, Wilson. I uh, we talked a little bit about the difference between the amendment that Florida voters approved in August, this new amendment that is on the ballot in November. Uh, These are two solar amendments in two consecutive elections in the Sunshine State, where a (laughs) lot of folks have complained that, that solar power ought to be part of the portfolio in a bigger way than it is. What does it tell us that Florida voters are faced with the complexity of these two in a relatively short period of time? Are we... Are we at an inflection point when it comes to solar power now?
9: Well, I think um, if you listen to the audio of of this guy talking about um, some of the tactics that um, they use to get solar uh, amendment one on the ballot, uh, solar polls well (laughs) because people generally want this. Um, We are the sunshine state. I think a lot of people don't recognize how how, uh, little solar there is in the state. Uh, There is expanding um, solar through, through utilities. These are solar farms that like FPNL run. So there, it is expanding, but I think a lot of people want to take it into their own hands instead of waiting um, to to have solar companies decide that that's the direction they want to go in. I mean, if you look at where, some of the polls on Amendment 1, you know, 66 percent. Um, but then if you really talk to some of these people both today and when um, the petitions were in the field for both Solar Amendment 1 and Solar Amendment 4, people are really confused. They want to support solar solar but um and they think that both are supporting solar um just just encouraging solar and and there's more nuance uh, especially to, to amendment <laughs> mm-hmm. one
0: let's go to the phone mary ellen
9: class oh go ahead tom i was
0: just going to bring in uh ryan from winter haven who's got uh, an interesting point about kind of the process that uh has uh, happened here that has led to these two constitutional amendments potentially uh ryan uh, welcome to decision florida you're on the air go ahead
8: um, yes, uh, my my point is um, it really is bothersome that we see um, this issue that, as it changes when you're dealing with um, solar energy or any type of renewable energy, now we're trying to push this through and make it into the, with a constitutional amendment, as opposed to allowing a legislature to do their job. As this changes, the environment's going to be significantly different as more and more adoption of renewable energy occurs. And um, so we're going to have something in our Constitution that now we have to remove from the state Constitution to address at a later point in time. This really needs to be left to the legislature and not handled through a constitutional amendment.
0: Ryan, I want to put that to Marilyn Klaas. You've covered the state legislature in a good long time. uh, Talk about the process here that has led to the potential of solar into the Florida Constitution as opposed to the lack of a legislative action.
5: Well, it, as we as we have watched with many constitutional amendments that go before b- voters, it's usually because of a failed effort to get any legislation through. And um, the Florida utility industry has an enormous influence on the Florida legislature. And so when solar installers and, and smaller businesses and groups that came to the legislature and said, we want to have the opportunity to, to do what 45 other states allow, and that is to to – Put leased solar panels on people's roofs and then sell it. Sell it back to the grid. Sell it back to the utility. The legislature refused to remove the ban, and so the proponents came out with their own constitutional amendment they failed to get enough signatures they had a, a a war with the utility companies that created their own their own amendment and that is the one that we are that is now before voters so it was it has it is the result of uh many years of sort of this tug and pull between the interest groups
1: uh, we have another call when we talk about solar power in Florida it's bill in fort lauderdale hi bill you're on the air
3: oh thanks for taking my call yeah i I mean, it's very distressing, Uh
8: the fact that uh, the language is allowed. uh I mean, I'm a fairly educated person. I had to reread the amendment a few times, and it wasn't until I got on social media and got the skinny on it that this deceptive
3: language is allowed to be written into something that we have to vote on when, you know,
8: not only is it hard to understand, it's totally deceptive once you kind of get the, uh you know, you know, it's about solar, and then you have all of the advertisements on TV. Isn't there some sort of uh, body that regulates a certain
3: degree of minimal standards of how language is presented on the on what we have to vote on, so
8: that it's not, I would call it criminally deceptive. Thank thanks, you.
1: Bill. Yeah, thanks for that question, Wilson Sayer. He's, he's saying there ought to be a law, <laughs> in basically, uh, what about that?
9: Yeah. Well, so this language does go to the Supreme Court, and they approved it. Um, People weren't happy about that. But once you go and put a petition in the field, you can't change it post facto. People have signed off on this is what they want to see on on the, you know, uh, as a ballot amendment uh, on the ballot. And so if the Supreme Court says, well, it passes muster, then then it sort of you have to take it wholesale.
0: Ryan Bank with WJCT. Th- this was language that was approved by the state Supreme Court, but it was a very narrow Margin. I think it was a 4 3 vote. So uh, even at the highest uh, uh, judicial levels, there was some consternation about this language.
8: Right. I think uh, Justice uh, Barbara Pariente is is the one who wrote the dissenting opinion and she called it a wolf in sheep's clothing. She basically agreed with opponents of the amendment that um, that that it was it was masquerading as a pro solar amendment uh, when in reality um, it was it was an anti solar amendment or it was meant to clap down uh, clamp down on. On the power of utilities. I also want to mention, um, there was this poll from St. Leo University. Actually, they've been polling about every single month for the last three or four months. Um, the pulse of, of, uh, Florida voters when it comes to amendment one, and they found that there was about 80% approval, um, from Democrats, Republicans, and independents, um, this is actually a poll that is being used on campaign literature for uh, Consumers for Solar Choice who are are running or backing Amendment 1. And when I had a chance to actually talk to the pollster from the university, um, he said that the the poll that he conducted was – only about the title of the amendment. So it only included the title of the amendment. And it uh, it asked voters, uh, it asked uh, these, these people being polled if they would support it. And he said the whole reason he was doing this was because many voters who don't have as, as much access to information or who, who feel fatigued by the time they're getting to, 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 their, to their amendments, yeah. only look at the title when yeah. they're making their decision. There's a, saying, um, so, there's a
0: saying about a book and its cover, I think, that is right. coming to <laughs> yeah, mind right. here. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. that's uh, Ryan Bank with WJCT. Let me just remind folks here, Melissa, you are listening to Decision Florida from WLRN Miami. This is Florida Public Radio.
1: More calls coming in from around the state. Let's go now to Jenny in Redland. Hi, Jenny. Uh, are you an FP customer? Do you have solar power? I have so-
2: <clears throat> I have solar. I um, participated in a program that was offered a few years back. I don't know if it still is, but I think it was like four or five years ago. I um, put a 10k system on my roof, and um, but I had to. I went through. I went through FPL. They gave me twenty thousand dollars towards it. And then I had to pay the rest of it, and plus I got, um, you know, tax write-off.
0: Are you happy with it?
2: <clears throat> I'm happy with the solar, yes. Okay. Well, what do you think about Amendment 1? I think what everybody else is calling in is saying, it's very confusing. I listen to it on the TV, the ads they put out, and you think that it's pro-solar. You think that they're, I mean, it, it, it is not communicating what they're trying to do. They're literally, literally trying to take um, some of the control over it away from the uh, consumer.
1: They're trying to give FPL more control, it looks like. Thanks for that call. Marion Kloss, do you agree with that?
5: Uh, what this does is it will install, insert into the Constitution uh, a legal opportunity or a legal avenue for the utility customers to indeed have um, – more, I don't know if you can say more control because everything still has to go through the regulatory body of the Public Service Commission, but they will have an, an opportunity to probably reduce the benefits to consumers. Now, the question in other states has been, if they do things like reduce the net metering fee, um, does that apply to customers like your caller, people who've already installed, or is it only going to apply, would any future change apply to just new customers? That is something that regulators would have to decide. Mary but Ellen, just about there a is minute no left. There's no doubt there's an avenue here.
0: Let me ask you just, what happens if Amendment 1 passes? Amendment 4 in August passed, so now we've got two <laughs> solar amendments that voters have said, let's <laughs> add these to the Constitution.
5: Right. They're not really um, incompatible. The, the opportunity would be for people to continue to get solar, they would pretty much... Um, likely, because of the market dynamics and the economics, would have to go through their utility company to get the solar. And whether or not that has the economic benefit that it would have if there was more competition is the unanswered question.
8: Ryan Banker, WGCT, you were laughing a little bit on that. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, I think... um I think the fear here is that – well, I can speak to the to the local issue here. JEA is a municipally, uh, municipal utility here in Jacksonville. Uh, in March, they announced that they were uh, going to hold some public meetings to try to bring down the net metering rate from 11 cents – to 7.5 cents a kilowatt hour there was a huge uproar uh, just a few seconds left ryan there's a huge uproar and and now they're saying they're waiting until after uh they see the results of amendment yeah. uh one which is pretty telling As a yeah, lot we'll of folks are
0: yeah ryan bank with wjct wilson sarah wlrn here in miami mary ellen Kloss with our partner the miami herald with us from our sister station in tallahassee
1: And that's our program for today. We invite you to join us on social media. Share your experience this political season with us. Just use the hashtag #DecisionFlorida or search Decision Florida when you download a podcast of this show at iTunes.
0: Decision Florida is produced by WLRN Public Media in Miami by Julia Duba. Holly Landis is our booking producer. Rebecca Intralgo, our phone screener. Jason Zabka, our technical director.
1: With engineering help from Charles Michaels and Doug Peterson, WLRN's program director is Peter Merz. We also received production help this week from WJCT in Jacksonville, WMFE in Orlando, and WFSU in Tallahassee. I'm Melissa Ross. And
0: I'm Tom Hudson. This special program from Florida Public Radio has been a presentation from WLRN Public Media in Miami. Thanks for listening.